Welcome to the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. When talking about the built environment, we would do well to remember, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. Therefore, on each episode, we'll discuss the latest trends from IATMO in plumbing and mechanical safety, sustainability, and resiliency. Join me, your host, Christoph Lohr, and together we'll explore the ways we can make our buildings shape us for the better. Welcome to this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. I'm your host, Christoph Lohr, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives with IATMO. This is part one of a two-part series where we'll continue our conversation on plumbing resiliency, expanding a little bit more into the weeds on drought prevention and water reuse with Sarah Porter, Director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. Micah Thomas, Senior Director of Program Development and Compliance at the Green Building Initiative, also known as GBI. Pat Sinekropi, Executive Director at the Water Reuse Association. And finally, Mike Kalignan, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Green Builder Coalition. It's with my great pleasure to introduce our four panelists that have joined up for our podcast recording here today. Starting off with Sarah Porter, who is the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. Established in 2014, the Kyle Center promotes research, analysis, collaboration, and open dialogue to build consensus in support of sound water stewardship solutions for Arizona and the West. Sarah, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely thankful to have you on here. Next up is Micah Thomas. Micah Thomas is GBI's primary content expert and heads the development of GBI's user-friendly assessment tools and rating systems. As Senior Director of Program Development and Compliance, Micah refines the assessment, rating, and certification processes and develops customized tools and processes to meet the specific and unique needs of federal guiding principles compliance users. Micah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, Christoph. I'm excited. Uh, definitely excited too. Next up is Pat Sinekropi, who is the executive director of the Water Reuse Association, the only national organization dedicated solely to advancing policy, technology, and innovation, and public acceptance for water reuse. Pat has nearly two decades of experience as a policy expert and advocate on water-related issues in Washington, D.C. Pat, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Sure thing, Christoph. Thanks for inviting us. And last but certainly not least is Mike Kalignan. Mike is the executive director of the Green Builder Coalition, an organization he co-founded in 2010. He engages in national and state level advocacy and publishes regular content for Green Builder Media. Mike, really thankful that you took time out of your busy schedule as well to join us today. Oh, honored to get the invitation and be a part of such a great group. Well, let's go ahead and dive right in. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, at the beginning here, I made that introduction in regards to the concept of water reuse and, and this focus of using water reuse to, to help with drought prevention and drought preparation. And all of that wraps up into disaster mitigation. Droughts are obviously more of a slow-moving disaster rather than a long-term uh, or, uh, excuse me, a quick and sudden disaster. So it plays a very specific role in a very important way to a, a really big issue. I, I guess when we talk about the big picture, you know, throwing this out there to our panelists, you know, what are some of the big picture water reuse policies out there? I'll start, Christoph. I would say, you know, several years ago at the end of the Obama administration, actually, the administration issued a compendium of water reuse policies across the U.S. And one very important policy statement at the beginning of the, that compendium was a statement in support of water reuse, a statement that encouraged communities and businesses to really look to water reuse as a way of addressing drought 
and other environmental water-related challenges. And following on that statement, the, the Trump administration actually launched an initiative, a national initiative referred to as the National Water Reuse Action Plan, put together an action plan that contains over 50 action items that really placed a focus, a national focus and spotlight on different action steps and different policies that states could pursue, that local municipalities could pursue to help accelerate the adoption of water recycling. While there is no federal regulatory policy related to water reuse, the states operate and take the lead in implementing regulations and rules guiding the adoption of water recycling projects. The federal government does have the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Clean Water Act, and between those two federal statutes have really provided the guardrails for states to come in and lead us on water recycling adoption, and they are. And it's great to see the federal government also leading that collaboration through the, you know, the Water Reuse Action Plan and through funding programs that the government invests in and make available to support the community's deployment of water recycling projects. Well, that makes me wonder, Pat, do you know of any sort of examples of various cities and municipalities, maybe especially in the Western U.S., because I think that's probably the one that uh, comes up the most, where they're, you know, using some kind of water reuse to, in preparation of drought conditions? Well, yeah, there, there are plenty. And of course, the, the more famous or the larger projects are, are in California, in Texas, Arizona. One in particular, of course, the first really large-scale potable reuse project is, was built in Orange County, uh, California, Southern California. It supplies approximately 100 million gallons a day of potable fresh water to residents in Southern California. That really made quite a splash when uh, they began that project. The project involves recharging a large aquifer, underground aquifer, uh, using it as an environmental buffer to help clean and treat the water, and then pulling it back up, uh, sending it out to residences. But after that, I would say, you know, the largest project is on the horizon in California. The city of Los Angeles has made a commitment that by 2035, the city will recycle all its wastewater and provide it for customers to use as a potable water supply. So that's an exciting, bold initiative. It's going to be probably the largest water recycling project that we will see uh, in the next uh, decade or so coming online. So the West is leading, certainly leading the way on potable uh, reuse in the country. Well, and you mentioned Arizona, and, and that makes me think, you know, Sarah, you're online, and obviously you're here in Arizona with me. You know, my sense is that Arizona has definitely been on the forefront of many of these concerns. Any maybe good examples that are, are worth uh, highlighting here as well? Sure. Arizona, especially in the most populous areas, which would be really Phoenix to Tucson, kind of the central part of the state, reuses about 93% of the water that enters the treatment system. And so, the, and the reuse goes to all kinds of different applications. 
there isn't a direct potable reuse application yet. And I, I think that's just a matter of the lack of need for that big investment, but it, it's out there. And our Department of Environmental Quality has recently gone through a rulemaking process to enable DPR as cities evolve into needing it. But currently, uh, wastewater is treated and reused for you know, golf courses, which I think is true in lots of different parts of the country, drier parts of the country. There are really interesting partnerships for the reuse of water for recharge or other uses with manufacturers that create a lot of wastewater. So a great example of that is the Intel plant in Chandler, east of Phoenix. They're, they partnered with Chandler to actually build a wastewater treatment plant and the city of Chandler takes the wastewater from that plant, the treated water, and banks it. And I think one of the things that has really made Arizona step to the forefront of reuse is that we enacted a cap-and-trade system for groundwater about 40 years ago, which suddenly made wastewater or effluent. Now, nowadays, we're not supposed to even say effluent. We're supposed to say reclaimed water. But it made reclaimed water an asset because the entities that treat wastewater and create reclaimed water own that reclaimed water. It's special. It's some of the most mm-hmm. fungible water in the Arizona system. You know, it, every type of water, groundwater, surface water, all comes with a set, you know, some special constraints. You can't, you use it or lose it in terms of in-state surface water. Groundwater can't be transported over, you know, from one groundwater basin to another. That's a state law. But wastewater basically isn't subject to those constraints. So while it costs something to treat it and to store it, it's some of the most usable water. And cities can basically treat water and then recharge aquifers with it and accrue credits under our cap-and-trade system for groundwater in the groundwater-managed areas of the state. You know, and I, I was going to say, I like your terminology of banking the water. You know, I, I remember reading a few articles, even one just the other day that talked about that process here in Arizona. You know, one that always sparked my interest, especially having taken classes on power plant design in college was uh, Palo Verde Nuclear Power Plant yeah, utilizing yeah, the wastewater. <laughs> I should have mentioned that one. That's the uh, largest nuclear power plant in the United States. And it's the only nuclear power plant in the world that isn't next to a big body of water because you need a lot of water to cool a nuclear power plant. And years and years ago, the entity that owns Palo Verde, APS, Arizona Public Service, entered into a deal with cities in central Arizona, Phoenix, Scottsdale, others, to send their treated, now we say reclaimed water, (laughs) to Palo Verde for cooling the plant. And nowadays, I'm not sure that deal would be made because that water has higher and higher value but at the time, for its time, that was an extremely innovative thing to do. Yeah. No, I, and frankly, it's, I think it's a good reminder of how water can have an impact on energy in many ways. And to me, it's, it was very innovative. Having taken yeah. classes on nuclear power plant design, it's, it was pretty cool. Uh, a number of years ago, I even had a chance to take a tour of the plant, and it's oh, pretty impressive. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. very cool. And I've, I haven't had the chance for the tour, though. I think I'm on like the, the B list, the waiting list. <laughs> and I want to do that someday. But I have been told that the water is cycled something like 19 times before it's, you know, the, the very, at that point, briny water is put out into, a, into an evaporation pond. So there's a high, you know, there's all this push for very high efficiency 
in terms of its use in that case, partly because it's not cheap. You know, Palo Verde's APS uh, renegotiated its deal with the cities a few years ago, and and it regards that water as as somewhat costly, and it and it's an interesting deal because it provides a revenue stream for those cities that they're they're realizing from, you know, what other cities in places that are more water rich may be regarded as a problem, something to get rid of. Sarah, is there any movement to change the law forbidding the basins, or is that too politically? Yeah, that's a very fraught issue. Probably not uh, going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> there are some basins that are that are carved out for transfer of groundwater, but there's a lot of resistance, as you can imagine, in rural areas to having their the water pumped out of their aquifers and moved to the cities. You know, going back to, I know we just kind of focused on Arizona, but Pat, one of the other things that you had kind of said and sort of alluded to in, in your previous answer too, was that there's a lot of spots not in the Western U.S. that are worried about drought prevention, drought preparation, and or water reuse in, in those efforts. Can you kind of speak on some of those from, from a high level? Sure. Well, one project in particular is in Georgia, Gwinnett County. They draw their water supply from Lake Lanier. And of course, Lake Lanier is also a water source for Atlanta and for communities in Florida and Alabama. And so they've had to turn to water reuse as a way of replenishing Lake Lanier so that the lake can continue to supply the water for, you know, thousands of customers in Mm. southeastern, in that southeastern region. Interestingly, more and more on the, what we're seeing on the East Coast is aquifers are being depleted at a faster rate than there is rainfall, sufficient rainfall to replenish them. And this is happening up and down the east, the eastern seaboard and utilities and communities are turning to water recycling to help replenish those aquifers at the same time as they deal with other adverse impacts of climate change. And a great example of it of this is in Hampton Roads, Virginia, where they're seeing rapid depletion of their groundwater supply, which is causing saltwater intrusion issues, land subsidence issues. And the the project that they are undertaking, it's a great, great name. It's called the SWIFT Project, Sustainable Water Initiative for Tomorrow. And that region will, within, I think, 20, 30 years, recycle 100% of their effluent discharges into this underground aquifer so that it can be taken up as a water supply, for potable water supply, and at the same time, basically hold up the ground and prevent the, the subsidence that's occurring from continuing to occur. And of course, that region of the country, the reason why I, lo- I love talking about this project is because the uh, southeastern region, Hampton Roads, Virginia, accounts for, I think, the largest number of military installations in the country. So it's an an important region to Mm. the national defense infrastructure. And they've really been suffering from a lot of of flooding. And as I said, a lot of saltwater intrusion threatening their, their potable supplies. So it's a great project that demonstrates the multiple benefits 
that a water recycling approach can provide to a community that may not necessarily be facing problems caused by persistent drought, but are facing serious water resource pressures from a combination of factors, including drought, mm-hmm. but including population growth and rising sea levels. I think that's interesting. One of the projects, Green Globe certified projects that I have in terms of reclaimed water and water reuse is actually a government project. I can't specify the name of it, but it's based in Alabama. They scored greater than 50% for reclaimed water within our system. They use a cistern that's an exclusive non-potable irrigation source that's provided by rain harvesting with an industrial reuse water. They also have a roof runoff that connected to a below ground cistern for the rain harvesting. And the water level of the cistern irrigation flow is tied into their building automation system. And then the makeup water for the cistern comes from a local non-potable water source so that no potable water is used for irrigation. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Also based in Alabama, it's certified just last year. Mm, so great. I'm going to have to look into that project. I hadn't, I hadn't heard about that project yet, but that's a great one. Another great project that we love to talk about is another project in Virginia it's uh, a project that Loudon Water manages, and Loudon Water sends, you know, hundreds of gallons a day to these huge data centers that are real water hogs because they use water for cooling. And um, mm. one one fun fact is that seventy percent of the world's internet traffic at one time, I don't know if it still does, but flows through these data centers in Loudoun County, Virginia. And, um, you know, but for the recycled water that they use to cool those facilities and those data farms, they're, you know, they wouldn't be able to locate where they're located. So, you know, water reuse is really sustaining our economic foundation in many ways and the economic foundation of these newer, cleaner technology sectors. It's interesting that you say that, Pat, you know, if there's anything that from the, or just the first portion of our conversation here, it's, it's becoming pretty clear that water reuse can have a really big impact, you know, not just drought prevention, but, you know, population growth and everything else. And it's really a national thing. I think a lot of times we think, oh, drought, we just have to worry about the West, but it's, you know, obviously the whole country and, and, you know, global, I would imagine would kind of extend to that. And, you know, here in the country, there's this impact on energy and national defense and technology, new technologies, like you mentioned. So, you know, let me ask you know another question here. Are there some future trends that we're starting to see formulate right now when it comes to water reuse? And I guess let me throw that over towards Sarah. Is there something that you've maybe seen? The biggest thing I've seen is what Pat alluded to, which is in the um more water-challenged parts of the southwestern U.S., I see a move toward a greater acceptance of deployment of direct potable reuse. So that's, you know, for a long time, people were concerned that the, as it was always called, the yuck factor would prevent or put off the day when DPR became part of uh, municipal water portfolios. But we're seeing it. Orange County, San Diego has made a big commitment, L.A., uh, more more cities, I think, all around the Southwest are looking at DPR. I think that's a big trend. But I think the question really, Christoph, you know, if you're talking about future trends is, at what point are we going to have to look at reuse being a part of our building codes? 
I don't know if it's really a question of if anymore. If you look at any recent drought monitor map, you see that uh, a high, high percentage of the Southwest is in exceptional drought. To your earlier point about it not just being a West or a Southwest thing, look at the most recent drought monitor map and you'll find moderate drought in the upper Midwest and even in the Northeast. So I just asked the question to the group here is, what do you see as far as reuse being incorporated into building codes? I'd, I'd like to jump in there. This is Sarah. Because of the way water regulation evolved, there has been a preference, maybe not a thoughtful preference, but definitely a preference for centralized systems. And so, as I mentioned before, you know, we have this high degree of reuse in the places where groundwater is managed in Arizona, where there's essentially a cap and trade system because that makes it places of value on reclaimed water. And I always think this tension between there's a kind of group that loves decentralized systems and wants gray water systems that are watering landscapes, for example. And I think that's interesting, this tension between localized or decentralized reuse and centralized reuse is interesting and worth exploring. Decentralized reuse doesn't necessarily make sense in every case. It makes some local non-expert the the responsible party for implementing a reuse system. Possibly, it means that you have decentralized service rather than centralized service. But on the other hand, you know, it can expand opportunities to reuse water. So I think it's worth exploring which is preferable and why, and how do you embed those preferences into policies to enable the optimal use of reclaimed water? Well, and to your to your concern about the decentralized systems, you know, the elephant in the room is maintenance, right? Maintenance of those systems at the individual or the homeowner level. Is that right. being done or not? Is that being monitored or not? Uh, you get into issues of potential water quality issues. So it, it, it is a topic certainly worth thinking about, but it is there are some pitfalls there. And I'll just jump in on this topic. I think it is uh, decentralized or what, how we like to say distributed on-site systems are becoming a trend in the sector. And I think that's because of several reasons. One is to address you know supply pressures in the West in growing communities that want to accommodate development but don't necessarily have the supply to accommodate it. Uh, On-site systems that are used for non-potable purposes, flushing, cooling, um, can play a very helpful role. And in the East, we're seeing drivers of, you know, legacy systems that are really becoming overburdened by the growth pressures that they're experiencing. So, for example, New York City is really looking at on-site decentralized systems as a way of mitigating impacts from their combined sewer systems during storm events. Now, there, there are challenges to decentralized systems and certainly the maintenance challenge, operational challenges do exist. But I think at least with respect to larger commercial buildings adopting decentralized approaches, commercial buildings that typically 
could provide the operational capacity to maintain the system properly and safely, I think you'll be seeing more and more of those systems coming online in an integrated way where there are very mature centralized systems that you know are may be reaching the the life of that system and need to develop different approaches to managing their water resources locally so i think you know decentralized systems will be part of our future part of the future mix and their the challenge before us will be to figure out where they make sense, as Sarah said, where they don't make sense, and how to integrate them effectively and safely into our, you know, mature centralized system approach. So that's, you know, that's a lot of the work that the Water Reuse Association is is focused on now, and we'll see where that takes us. That concludes part one of our two-part episode with Sarah, Micah, Pat, and Mike. Join us next week when we'll continue our conversations and discuss water reuse from the decentralized versus centralized approach, limits that policymakers need to be aware of when it comes to utilizing water reuse programs for incentivizing conservation and finding the right reuse solution for local populations. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. Love this episode of the podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please follow us on Twitter at AuthorityPM on Instagram, at The Authority Podcast, or email us at iatmo at iatmo.org. Join us next time for another episode of The Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. In the meantime, let's work together to make our buildings more resilient and shape us for the better.